1 Samuel 7, 15, 8 through 9. Samuel continued as judge over Israel all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was, and there he also judged Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Bathsheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased, displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them but warn them solemnly and let them know that the king, what the king who will reign over them will do. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And again, for anyone that may be tuning in now in the service, I just want to remind you that this is Pastor Craig's sermon that he wrote, I am just the reader of the sermon. So may the mouth, the words of my mouth and the meditation of Craig's heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. I once heard it said that our ability to change or control others ends at our skin. I have come to learn that to be one of the most accurate, if not sometimes most difficult truths to bear, we are wired to want those we love most to succeed. We can dedicate and invest in our lives as parents, leaders, and preachers to help nourish, teach, nurture, and make it possible for those who follow us to do even better than we have and to make the right decisions. Even so, many of us know well what it feels like for those we pour ourselves out for to stumble and falter. This can be gut-wrenching, considering our deepest desires for them to flourish. It can cause us to want to change or make others do or be what we want them to do or be. We can plea, we can beg, we can encourage, we can be angered, and we can pray earnestly for others to change. But at the end of the day, we feel disappointed when our efforts do, make, when our efforts do not make things better. Jesus himself expressed this kind of pain in wanting his children, Israel, to change. Once in sadness, he looked down upon Israel and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. 
There are fewer things more difficult in this life than to watch people and communities that we love struggle to reach the potential we so much want for them. I suppose this explains why the scriptures are so chocked full of such stories. Adam and Eve, Jacob and Esau, God and Israel, Jesus and the disciples, each a painful story about those who cannot seem to keep from disappointing those who have given them all they ever needed to thrive. In a day when the church seems to be in decline, we can be disappointed in those who do not reward the hard work we do for them so that they might come to church. We grow disappointed in those who do not understand the scriptures just like we do, and we begin to wonder if we can be in the same church together. We grow disappointed in those we love who cannot stay sober, reliable, or loving. Often we can think, if I could only make them see and think the right way. Yet, even if we know that our ability to change someone else ends at our skin, we are tempted to continue to double down on our attempts to change others. When we do, we run the risk of adding strife to already difficult realities. First Samuel is the story about the era of the judges who led Israel's gradual transition towards a monarchy or having a king to rule them. This did not happen all at once, and it was a difficult transition. These narratives of the judges are rich and make for interesting reading because they relate so well to our human and communal experiences in life. These service, servants were anointed by God's spirit to speak to the people on God's behalf. Some had done well. Deborah, for example, was considered a great judge who sat under a palm tree to hold court and help Israel keep the peace. Yet, not all judges were great at this. There are some disappointing people here, those like Samson, who were deeply flawed, and sometimes their mistakes led Israel and or God to seek another, hopefully better, judge to intervene. Samuel, as we learned last week, was a judge called forth for after Eli had been a disappointment because he could not keep his sons in check. So God called Samuel. He was indeed better in important ways. He leads Israel toward a better culture, cultural, social, political, and spiritual reality. Overall, he was a good listener who lead, listened to God and led by God. Yet he truly disappoints eventually, and for the very same reason as his teacher, Eli. He is aging at this point, and he had decided to appoint his sons to succeed him. The problem is that they, much like Eli's sons, were not as just as their father. They took bribes, they twisted justice toward their benefit, and the people had had enough of it. Everyone sees that his inability to rein in his sons will continue to lead toward bigger problems. They may have had love for Samuel. He had done much good for them, but they want change, and they want a full-fledged king like everyone else. Readings and studies on this text key in on this desire that Israel had to be like everyone else, as in, Everyone else has a king, so so should we. We often read out of this story a warning to be careful wanting to be like the world. Yes, 
There is truth to this, and God acknowledges this to be a problem. Yet, there is more here to unpack. This is a story about disappointment and decisions and how God responds. Israel is disappointed that Samuel will not keep his sons from causing harm. Samuel is disappointed that Israel is rejecting his leadership. So Samuel turns to God. Surely God will side with him. Surely God will see the error of Israel's ways of thinking and God will stop this madness of having a king. We can do this too, can't we? We can see the mistakes of some and be convinced that God is on our side. So Samuel prays, but instead of God saying, you tell them to get it together and follow your lead, God tells Samuel to go ahead and grant their request. Let them have their way. If that is what they want, let them have it. Well, I suppose God can disappoint us too at times. We may not have the ability to change others, but what does it mean that God either will or will not, will not or cannot? God does tell Samuel to warn them that taking this path will not go well, but in the end, God grants their request. What does this say about God? Or perhaps a better question, what does this teach us about God? Why does God allow human beings to wreak havoc on the world with our bad decisions? Why does God allow us to ask for and receive the wrong things? Why does God give us the freedom to do harm and make wrong choices? I do not know about you, but I find that God is much more comfortable allowing free will to run its messy course in people's lives than I am. When I am tempted to think that the world would be much better if God would step in, direct our will for us, and lead us toward better endings, I come to stories like today. I remember that this is not how God works. God's deepest desire was always for them to freely place their will along with God's will. There was harmony when that happened, and there was disappointment when it did not. There were times when God was willing to give up on this endeavor. For example, in the great flood story, God came awfully close to giving up on humanity, yet offers another chance and promises never to do it again. Moses once begged God to remember this very promise before God ended things for Israel. Yes, God allows our wills and decisions. God allows consequences to fall upon us, but it is not without the lament of a parent. In his prose called Whistling in the Dark, Frederick Beckner wrote that when the people decided they wanted a king of flesh and blood like all the other nations, Samuel warned them that the consequences would prove tragic, and history proved God correct in every aspect. Eventually, they were bitterly disappointed. Yet, at the heart of our disappointments, we still have the God of Romans 8:28, who said, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. I understand that to mean that the Lord can do good things with bad things. Even if we become authors of our own or someone else's disaster, even if God allows us the will to continue to repeat our misfortunes, the Lord persistently keeps working for our good. 
The good news is that none of our mistakes are too big for God to overcome with forgiveness, resurrection, redemption, and reconciliation. The days of the prophets, judges, and kings have all passed away, but the coming of Christ established on heaven and in earth a ruler of our lives. Even so, just as God allowed Israel their folly, Christ did not come to take away the will we have been given and that we can so severely misuse. Instead, he gifted us this community of believers we call the church. Here, we are given the freedom to do the worst, own the results, and then be willing to help each other to work towards healing and making things right again. This reminds me of what Emily Freeman writes in her book called The Next Right Thing. She imagines God in community through forgiveness and celebration, not in order to get acceptance, but because we already have it. She says that, I want to be gentle with myself and with others, and to remember that our life with Christ is measured not with boundary lines, right practice, or perfectly made decisions, but only by the love that is experienced in the Trinity and handed out to us in abundance. When we are successful in creating such a community, the church becomes a place where hurtful cycles are broken. It becomes a place where people can freely begin to choose the next right thing. If today you and I in any way are stuck, stuck in our efforts to change others, stuck in the pains of our own making, the invitation to following Jesus today is to choose your next right thing. Maybe you have heard this phrase before, do the next right thing. This advice has come from people like St. Teresa, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., Theodore Roosevelt, and Anne Lamont. Coaches and leaders use it, and the concept is most readily associated with the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. There it reads, we earnestly pray for the right ideal, for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity, and for the strength to do the right thing. In short, this model is meant to help us get back up when we fall, to learn from our wrong decisions, and to not get stuck in the mess of repeating the same ones. We may not all be in recovery or all athletes, but we all need this guidance along the way. As God's adopted sons and daughters, we sometimes create our own adversity. Yes, God will allow us to deal with the consequences of those bad choices. Yes, we will have to allow those we love the most to do the same. Yet, even so, may we trust that the Lord always, somehow, works for our good. And may we do the same when we must, be, must by helping others to do this next right thing. What might be your next right thing today? I leave with a paraphrase of Emily Freeman's words, and may it be our invitation to discipleship and the next right thing we must do, which is this. Be gentle with yourself, be gentle with others, and remember that our life with Christ is measured not with boundary lines, right practice, or perfectly made decisions. Instead, it is only by the love and grace that is experienced in the fullness of God's abundance. That love and grace is in this sanctuary today. 
Thanks be to God. Amen.